0: Welcome to the Well Woman Show. Each episode is a transformational journey using mindfulness, feminism, leadership, and strategy to support you to thrive personally, generate wealth, and impact your community. It's often assumed that I'm looking at this biology through the lens of a feminist, and I don't always think of it that way. I think I see these differences, and these differences are truths to me, and I think we do need to discuss them, and over the over over time, I have found that I then use that to to promote better understanding, you know, of both women, but also men's health. But I also use this as a platform to promote women in science, women in STEM, Um, and, and I've watched myself morph more and more into a feminist. And now, here's your host, feminist thought leader, London School of Economics grad, leadership consultant, and transformation. Coach Giovanna Rossi.
1: Hello, well, women. You've likely been overwhelmed, like me, anxious and downright scared. I've also been. All of these things, and also, I've been joyful and mindful and happy, too. On the tough days, I've questioned everything, my life, my purpose, and my worth. And on the good days, I've produced podcasts, interviewed global health scientists, like the interview you're going to hear today on the show, and I've been published in Forbes. It's a serious roller coaster. But you know what keeps me grounded? This, you, and my deep knowing that women are the backbone of the future economy not just any women, but you listening to this show, us. Together, we're going to create the foundation for the next generations to thrive. Are you with me? But first, let's get one thing straight. I need you to be fully present and alive and thriving, not necessarily in the produce crash, produce crash cycle that the world is used to. No, I mean really thriving on your terms, with your creativity and your voice. So, what I've been thinking about doing is really thinking about how do we dive into our new, our next chapter, our new chapter, the next version of our lives and our relationships and our work. And so I've actually put together a short program that's a group program. I don't do many group programs. I do a lot of one-on-one, but I wanted to offer this as an affordable way for people to really engage and benefit from this community uh, and and my coaching so I've put this together you can go to wellwomanlife.com slash your next chapter so wellwomanlife.com slash your next chapter I believe and you can take a look there and get signed up it starts on April 27th so if you're listening to this as this is publishing it's around mid-april you've got a few more days uh, to sign up it is a limited Um, group that we're doing this time, because I want it to be really intimate. So if you're interested, definitely head over there and take a look. And I'm excited to let you know that on the show this week, it's part two of a series I'm doing on the impact of sex and gender on health outcomes. Today, I have another episode on the COVID-19 research Uh, that came out a couple weeks ago. And I talked to Sabra Klein, PhD, a researcher and professor at Johns Hopkins University, whose research is focused on uncovering the mechanisms mediating how males and females differ in their immune responses to viral infection and vaccination. It's a fascinating conversation. On the show, we talk about the lack of gender-specific data for COVID-19 patients, how hormones play a role in the COVID-19 outbreak and how important it is to shine a light on male and female differences and the benefits we could have moving forward. So all the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 198 show. You can also continue the conversation with us in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. The show is thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking with Professor Sabra Klein on the show today. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Giovanna.
1: Professor Klein, I want to just start by asking you, um, you know, we're in such an interesting time, obviously, in in the world right now. And Recently, there was a New England Journal of Medicine study that came out in February. Uh, They studied uh, 1,099 um, patients in China with COVID-19. And the results were pretty interesting in terms of outcomes, the differences between men and women. And I'd love to know, what are you like, what are you working on in terms of this um, kind of information? And what are the challenges right now?
0: Absolutely. So, um, you know, the the paper that you're referring to is just it's a wonderful starting point for us um, about the situation that emerged out of China, and then has been replicated in Italy, Spain, France, Germany, Switzerland, the UK. And now in preliminary reports in the United States, in which during the current pandemic, so we are in the midst of a, you know, of our 100 year pandemic, that, 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 that awful viral pandemic that, that seems to occur every 100 or so years. And during this pandemic, what we're seeing is that while numbers of cases seem to be equal between men and women, suggesting that men and women are equally likely to be exposed to the virus and to test positive for the virus, which in this case is SARS-CoV-2, men are suffering significantly worse outcomes, both in terms of requiring um, intensive care unit um, hospitalization, so ICU uh, hospitalization, as well as mortality. We are consistently across countries seeing this male bias. Um, While this is greatest among older aged individuals, so individuals 60 years and older, Um, where countries have been partitioning and looking at the differences between males and females across diverse age groups. We're seeing this difference in age groups as young as 30 years of age. We just tend to have fewer severe cases in those younger adult age groups. Um, so, you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult to uh, confirm uh, these types of findings. But definitely, we are seeing that it's men suffering worse outcomes, more severe disease. Mm.
1: Okay, and let's talk a little bit about, well, I would like to talk about the data, but also about kind of the reasons we're seeing this. But Absolutely. first, on, on the data side, I understand that we have sex disaggregated data from some countries, but not all countries. Can you talk about where we are with getting access to that data in the U.S.?
0: Absolutely. So, Giovanna, I would hope that here we are in the year 2020. This would not be such a difficult bit of data to obtain. Uh, And in the United States, we are typically not very good at disaggregating and analyzing data to compare males and females. As you're seeing in most of the outlets, Um, We are just getting total numbers of cases. We are getting total numbers of hospitalizations. We're getting total numbers of deaths. This is sometimes broken down by age and then occasionally broken down by sex. But when they do break it down by sex, they collapse across all ages from zero to 99 and older. And that's where I think there's a problem in the United States because disaggregating, or, you know, for your listeners, all that means is partitioning your data based on on whether these are, are these cases are men, whether these cases are women, and then doing a further breakdown by our age so that you can then compare men and women at distinct ages. So you could compare males and females among children. So prior to puberty, You could compare men and women after puberty in the early stages of adulthood and then then in different age ranges as as we move through the adult life course. We don't do that in the United States, but many of our European uh, counterparts, as well as China as well as the UK have done just that, which is how we've been able to make this very uh, consistent observation that, that both older age and being male are risk factors for more severe outcomes. But I can't really tell you if we're seeing that same interaction, that same combination of age and sex driving what we're seeing in the United States, because we do not disaggregate, as you said. Um, our data to allow for that evaluation to occur.
1: Okay. And I have to say, this is not a surprise. We have known for many years that this is a problem in, in looking at all kinds of things in health yeah. and public health. Yes. Uh, but right now it's particularly distressing because it could actually really help us to know this.
0: And so who, it, who keeps that data? Who's the keeper of that? Is it? Um, the keeper of the data, you know, this is, this is about our U.S. center Uh, Centers for Disease Control, Um, and and they likely have these data, um, but this just is not how these data get reported. Another complication in the United States is that each state is doing their own reporting. Um, So, for example, I monitor very closely the situation in New York. Um, As you know, at least as of today, April 2nd, while we're doing this interview, New York has remained um, an epicenter um, where we have a majority of the case, both cases, but also um, deaths from COVID-19. Um, and they are not doing um, this type of disaggregation. So, Professor Klein, how
1: would knowing the, the, the data, how would that help us plan for critical care capacity and and care like caring for people as they get. Absolutely.
0: So maybe before you and I talk about how we care, what I think um, this disaggregation does is it is it points to who are our greatest at risk populations, which in, in this very moment where, um, as you know, we're all practicing social distancing, and part of why that is the recommendation is because we do not have um, a known uh, antiviral. We do not yet have a vaccine. These things will be coming, but today we do not have these. So our public health behaviors become what are most important. So I think by disaggregating and knowing that being older as well as being male are risk factors for more severe outcome, um, from this viral infection. I think that could inform public health messaging because once we know the at-risk groups, we know how to target those groups with our messaging to ensure that they're getting the message to stay home, to wash their hands, to practice social distancing. um, and that maybe it becomes all the more important if you know that you are at greater risk actually from dying from Mm -hmm. this virus.
1: But can I ask
0: you real quick before
1: Absolutely. we move on um, in terms of the data, it, are we also, and I, I I am very interested in, but are you also looking at um, uh, intersectional data analysis? So, so really looking, I know you mentioned age, but are you also interested in looking at race, ethnicity, geography? Oh, I
0: love it. Yes. Obviously,
1: so many other things to look there at. There really
0: are. Um, and, and I love that you use that word um, intersectionality. Um, I have a wonderful uh, collaborator and colleague at Johns Hopkins. Uh, her name is Rosemary Morgan. Um, and, and as a social scientist, she studies a lot of this intersectionality. Um, and and for me as a biologist, it's, it's always important for me to hear and know that um, much of our biology, and maybe even by biology, I mean our ability to mount an appropriate immune response, to hopefully appropriately control the virus, clear the virus, uh, without having that immune response get so high that it actually contributes to damage to our own bodies, um, that that there can be... Um, intersection of these biological processes with our gender, so some of the social um, or cultural norms that, that define us as, as being, you know, what is appropriate for being man or being a woman, um, or you brought up race, um, socioeconomic status. I think all of these factors can in turn um, intersect with our our biology and our biological responses to these viruses and one of the ways that i think some of the factors that that you mentioned and that i added on to could intersect with our biology is through um, what we often refer to as comorbidities. And you've probably seen some of the data coming out for COVID-19 indicating that uh, several comorbidities, which by definition, these are just other illnesses that um, are associated in this case with greater risk of severe outcome from COVID-19, so we're hearing about, for example, cardiovascular disease. Um, we're hearing about smoking. Um, we're hearing about pulmonary disease. Um, there have been some speculations. I haven't actually seen data, but about diabetes or obesity. And so we know that, that some of these other health conditions um, or even lifestyle choices like smoking, can be associated with socioeconomic status, with race, with ethnicity, even with gender. Um, And that by having some of these other diseases, this can impact our biology, and this might impact how well we can fight or control an infection like SARS-CoV-2.
1: Okay. And, you know, when we see this data coming out that that actually men are, there is pretty solid evidence that men um, are actually dying at higher rates than yeah, women. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: and we start looking at some of the reasons. You mentioned a few of them. You know, we're, we're seeing uh, explanations like, well, you know, more men than women smoke. And certainly that's true in some countries, but not all countries. So we can't really rely on that as an answer. Good, I agree. Um, Yeah. And then there are other things like, well, you know, men just don't wash their hands as much. Yeah. You know, there's just all of these kind of lifestyle and behavior things. uh, But we also have, yeah, go ahead.
0: You know, I just want to mention, I do think, you know, you brought up the hand washing, you know, I do think a lot of these behaviors obviously are very important, but I tried to make the point earlier in our discussion that, we really are seeing fairly equivalent numbers of cases among men and women, meaning that we seem to be equally likely to get exposed, which for me um, suggests that that that's evidence against the the hand-washing hypothesis, you know, that that, if, if it really was that men and their poor hand washing practices, which there really are data that, that show that, that they are less like, significantly less likely to wash their hands and when washing are significantly less likely to use soap, if that was the cause for this sex disparity, it would show up in the numbers of cases. It would show up in exposure. And that's not where we're seeing the disparity.
1: Right. So we're seeing the disparity in actual uh, people ending up in intensive yes. care or actually then dying. So,
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So from a biologist's perspective, I know there's some information about immunity and yeah. X chromosomes. Can you yeah.
0: can you explain that? Absolutely. I w- I will try my best in the little bit of time that you and I have together. So, um, you know, just as a as as a general rule of thumb, Women tend to mount greater immune responses uh, to viruses than do men, um, and and there there is evidence um, for other viruses that this can actually lead to faster clearance of virus infection. So you know you mount this this robust immune response. And, and, and it's greater in women as compared with men, and that leads to faster, um, and in many cases, more complete clearance of viral infections in women as compared with men. Um, we, when We know this is true in humans. Um, We've also seen this in studies um, using different animal models. So where we might be able to control for some of the lifestyle variabilities and comorbidity variability that that you and I have been discussing. So that's kind of sometimes nice because it really allows us to hone in and focus in on the immune system and, and kind of get rid of all those other, if you will, confounding factors. So we do know that there are these immunological differences. We also know, um, and in particular from animal studies, where again, we can get a little bit more mechanistic in terms of the kinds of, of, of laboratory types of manipulations that we can do. We know that our hormonal environment Um, really impacts um, the magnitude of an immune response. So we know that, um, for example, in men, they have higher concentrations or higher levels of testosterone than do women. And testosterone has been shown to um, suppress antiviral immune responses, whereas other hormones that are found in in greater levels in women like estrogen have actually been shown to enhance um, antiviral types of immune responses. So we know that our hormones can actually regulate the functioning of our immune cells and then and, and the magnitude of the immune response. So I, I never want to give anybody, including your listeners, this impression that we have different immune systems uh, than, than our, our, our male counterparts. We don't, we have the same immune cells making the same proteins in place, but this our hormonal environment can drive these cells to behave slightly differently. And in the context of a viral infection, these, these hormone-driven differences can significantly impact how well or how quickly we're able to clear an infection. Okay. You brought up X chromosomes. Um, so, um, and so in addition to our hormones, our, our sex chromosomes are thought to be pretty important in this context. And women have two X chromosomes, Um, Among mammals, males have one, so males have an X and a Y. And it does turn out that we have a lot of genes um, that are associated with immune function on the X chromosome. And these genes, um, generally speaking, um, get it, receiving we each have one copy from our mother and one copy from our father, there is um, a, a genetic system in place of what's referred to as X inactivation and it's thought to be random. so randomly one copy of each X chromosome gene should be inactivated so that we don't have greater expression. Um, of any X-linked gene than men. But we're learning that some of these um, immune system-related genes actually escape X inactivation. And this has been shown to um, result or be associated with development of autoimmune diseases in women. So why we could end up Um, inappropriately mounting that more robust immune response that I described, but toward ourselves. And so how this could actually, while detrimental in the context of an autoimmune disease, maybe be beneficial in the context of infection um, is something that I think investigators like myself would like to be exploring.
1: Okay. So that was a great mini biology lesson for listeners. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I I do want to say, you know, it, and i've had this conversation with other people it it seems like it's taken a pandemic for us to pay some attention to sex and gender differences do you feel that way and do you think that this is maybe an opportunity or an opening for I, research
0: i 100% agree with your statement it was it was very well said um, and and yes in many respects it's a shame that it takes a pandemic to put um, these male female differences in in immunity um, really onto an international stage. But I think that is what it has taken to um, gain some both support, but also some acceptance from the establishment. And I can't tell you how motivating it has been for for someone like me who's been doing this for, for 25 years. Um, To finally see um, mainstream uh, physician scientists asking these questions, disaggregating and partitioning their own data and publishing these observations and how motivating it has been that that more mainstream media is picking up on this, wanting to report on this and, and wanting to get the public um, more engaged in understanding these important differences. So I do think it's taken a pandemic, but I do see um, some benefits moving forward as, as we continue, you know, the entire world to appreciate these types of differences and how this could be used, you know, going back to a question you asked me that I didn't answer about how we care for and treat patients. You know, if if it does turn out that our biological responses to viral infections differ that may provide us with some clues as to why some treatments work and others don't. Maybe they're working in some patients, not others. And, and maybe considering um, sex as one of the variables that needs to be considered um, in this concept of how we might personalize treatments, you know, we can have, and, and you know, and you could probably list them, we've got a lot of drugs that are being considered right now um, as potential um, antivirals to help help manage um, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic right now. And they're not all working equally well. And and in many cases, you know, I can't help but wonder if if sex is a factor that needs to be considered. When evaluating whether a drug is or is not working, and so I do. I hope this starts to really impact um, and become one variable. It's not the only variable, but one variable that that we start considering when we evaluate treatments. Yes,
1: and I was going to end there, but I just feel like I have to call out uh, that for listeners, just um, I feel like I'd be remiss for for not saying that you know for years we've had clinical trials and research really pretty much uh, exclude women from, from the research and from the trials. And, and there were lots of explanations for that and, and all of that. And now we're, you know, we've seen a push to include more women in clinical trials because essentially we've got all of these um, solutions that really were only tested on men. And so now we, we, we have seen a push for more women in clinical trials, but, but not enough, and, and what do you say about that?
0: So, you know, you do, you raise a very um, important point about the history of excluding women from clinical trials. And, and while um, at least in the United States, um, you know, Congress uh, required a, a, a change of this in the 1990s and required that clinical trials um, include women and, and, And over the past several decades, we have seen a dramatic improvement, Um, even most recently when the U.S. Government Accounting Office looked at at clinical trials sponsored at least by the U.S. government. So I can't speak to private funding, but those funded by the U.S. government, you're actually now seeing more women than men enrolling in clinical trials. But what we are not seeing and what there is no accountability for is this disaggregation and analysis of data to compare males and females? So while you can have now maybe more women enrolled, you're not gonna know from that trial necessarily. Did women respond better? Did women have more adverse reactions? You know, what are the costs? What are the benefits? Um, and and how did that play out in men versus women? Um, because there is no accountability for that. So you know, I, I'm hopeful that 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 maybe this pandemic starts to change that.
1: Okay, well said. I'm speaking with Professor Sabra Klein from Johns Hopkins University. And we'll be right back. I'm so thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico, a monthly green healthy lifestyle publication, and for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. Many of you have followed my journey from consulting to women's leadership and empowerment, starting a nonprofit, raising two kids, and everything in between. I've really taken some time this year to focus in on where I can help the most women with their own desire to create social impact and also a good income for themselves and their families. As my consulting and coaching practice is growing, I found that one of my favorite things to do is the free discovery sessions. I love hearing about people's passions for the work they do, sharing what I do, and helping people understand what my hybrid consulting coaching is all about. Hint, hint, serious strategy plus spacious mindset. So if you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, or waking up in the middle of the night anxious about money, Lacking energy you need to get everything done, or procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or even if you're in a leadership role, but you're second-guessing yourself and not getting things done, I'd love to talk to you. These conversations help me get clear on how I can help more leaders create the impacts and income they want, so they can start living with ease and joy. Plus, you'll get a free hour with me to get crystal clear on what you want to create for your company or organization and your life, and what's been holding you back. So if you're interested, you can book a call at wellwomanlife.com slash learn more. Okay, we're back with Professor um, Klein. And uh, we're just going to do a quick segment here on um, you more about you as a leader. It's called our superpowers for success segment. And so just a few quick questions. What does success
0: in life mean for you? Oh goodness, that's such a deep question. Um, you know, I think especially as I, I sit in my own home uh, under in, in the midst of social isolation, um, I think success for me has meant for me personally figuring out that that balance and and where where that is. It differs for each of us, but that balance between who I am as a scientist and as a professional um, doing work that I am so passionate about um, and how I translate that and bring that into my home as both a wife and a mother and, and be a role model. I happen to have two daughters, 16 and 14 and, and how it is that I can be, hopefully, a role model to my two girls as to, you know, how you can translate this passion that you have for the work that you do into paying it forward. So maybe how I interact with, with either trainees or more junior faculty in my life, how I interact with my own children, how I foster um, girl power. Um, not just for my daughters, but maybe even for their friends.
1: Mm. Okay, great. And Professor, what, uh, what personal habit do you have that you're doing daily now that really contributes to your own well-being so you can stay healthy and well and do your important work in the world?
0: Oh, I love that. So what I have been doing probably more as a result of social isolation um, and being home during this pandemic is exercising and, and doing it as a family, um, which having us all make time to do things like this and let alone do them together. Um, that is not a, a typical, um, part of an average week in my home. And so having us go on, um, long walks or hikes with our dogs, um, has been something that we've been doing actually several times a day. It gets me away from my computer. Um, It gets me out breathing a little bit of fresh air, though still social distancing um, and exercising every day and not saying that I can't find time for it.
1: Mm, Good ones. Okay. What superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time?
0: Um. Oh, that's such a good question. I think. Um, oh, that is such a good question. Um, I'm th- okay. So you know, and I hope you're editing this. So that as I'm thinking out loud and not being particularly articulate. Okay, I think <laughs> I have. I think I have two superpowers, and I think um, my first superpower. Um, that I think has helped me, continues to help me, even in hard times like a pandemic, is I, I possess an innate ability to find humor in just about everything. And laughter and fostering that even in other people um, is is something that I often find I, I do. And I think it's good. I think sometimes laughter, I am a believer that sometimes laughter can be a remedy for, for a lot of things. And we probably don't do that enough, Um, you know, um, you know, and so then I think my other superpower that I think I've learned as, as, as I've moved up the ranks in my job, um, I think I have an inherent ability to bring people together um, and, and work together to find solutions. And I am really, really proud of that. I think, you know, um, I think, you know, we, we often, you know, our goals are often to do science for the greater good. And, and I I think we all attempt to do that, but then it can often be wrought with competition and attempts to, um, you know, make a name for yourself. And what I think one of the things that I'm most proud about is that I've been able to be successful um, not just by promoting myself, but by working really well and, and promoting uh, the work of other people. Ooh, and I, um, I don't know, sometimes I think, you know, I can't help but wonder, <laughs> is that the female in me? You know,
1: that would be another interesting sex and gender conversation. Yes, about, it would. It uh, would. About leadership and collaboration. Yeah. Versus yes. Transition. Yes.
0: So I don't know. In the midst of this pandemic, I find myself thinking about those kinds of things a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Couple last quick questions. What advice would you give your younger self, say 25 years old?
0: Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, you know, through... Um, You know, I'm seeing graduate students right now, even more junior faculty who are are really anxious as this pandemic is requiring them to stop research. All of us are having to stop research that's not COVID-19 related. Um, I think it is very, very difficult to hear that. And the word that we're using, and it's a terrible word because of just the negative connotation of it is all non-essential work must cease. And so to think of your your life work or your passion as non-essential is, is really tough. And Um, so what I would have told my younger self and what I'll tell, you know, the younger listeners is just continue to have confidence, stay the course. Um, it, it all works out. It really does. These bumps in the road are just that they're bumps. It all works out. Just stay the course and believe in yourself.
1: Mm. Okay. Last question. Do you identify as a feminist?
0: Yes, I do. Um, and, and, It's, 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 I, well, here's what I'm thinking about and why I, why I'm, uh, I'm, I'm losing my words for you. Um, I was once, one time at a conference, I was, um, in in another country, it was actually a South American country and I was introduced as an immunofeminist. Um, and I thought that was a very, you know, interesting way to introduce me. I don't know that it was intended to be a kind, um, remark, but it was a remark nonetheless. And, you know, because I study male-female differences, it's often assumed that I'm looking at this biology through the lens of a feminist. And I don't always think of it that way. I think I see these differences and these differences are truths to me. And I think we do need to discuss them. And over the, over over time, I have found that I then use that to, to promote, better understanding you know of both women but also men's health but i also use this as a platform to promote women in science women in stem um and and i've watched myself morph more and more um into a feminist that's a beautiful way to wrap
1: up the show uh professor sabra klein from johns hopkins university thank you so much for being on the program today Giovanna, thank you so much for inviting me. me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.